Now, last week we started out this chapter and we took just really the, the first two verses where I had indicated to you that it begins by saying, come everyone. And how traditionally people stop at that point, come everyone. But it doesn't stop there. It says, come everyone who thirsts. Even as Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And we begin to see that it is the Spirit of God, by the gracious working of God, that brings a person to the awareness of a thirst and a hunger. Taking that into the New Testament sense, because he was quite clear here, you're buying this without food, I mean, with, without money and without price, and it is a rich food, where Jesus would say, blessed is the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, for he shall be filled. Jesus said, why do you labor for that which does not last, the food that does not last to eternal life, and it puts it on a different level. But God in His grace, and many of us can attest to the day that in the hearing of the gospel and through the circumstances of His divine providence, we were thirsting for something more. We knew that the answers were not in us. The answers were not in, in other people. The answers were not in the things of this world. We had, we had in, in a sense, like you see uh, Solomon as he works his way through Ecclesiastes searching for wisdom, he tested out everything. He tested out wisdom. He tested out pleasures of the body. He tested intellect. He pursued every direction. And at the end of each of those, that when you read it, he pursued and experienced probably to a degree we never have. And not a degree I would ever encourage he says, all is vanity and chasing after the wind. But we know we still live in a world in which those around us don't realize they're chasing after the wind. It's all vanity that will not actually bring satisfaction. It won't bring abiding joy that, that hope and satisfaction is only in Christ Jesus. We've come to know that by His grace. And we were able to work through there and see what He's doing is those things that people consider needful, those things that people consider nourishing, those people, things that people consider delightful and desirable as He speaks of bread, water, milk, and wine. All of those things don't really accomplish that. And we looked at there as a spiritual step further where Jesus would even say, I have food to eat that you know not of. My food is to do the work of him who sent me. And then he would even turn things around in the minds of people by saying, I am the bread of life. He, you know, he who eats and drinks of me will never thirst again. That spiritual distinction that is Christ. And we saw that in the midst of that, there is a strong difference of even the designs and the desires of those people who are in Christ. The world is prone, as we saw, to self-seeking, self-service, self-esteem, self-indulgence. 
And Jesus comes into the midst of that and says, whoever would be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And we begin to recognize there is such a reality to this. He who has ears, let him hear. He who has eyes, let him see such a spiritual truth that undergirds all that we're seeing. But it had started out in Isaiah 55 with that call to the thirsty, a call for them to come. Now I want to take and, and, and move on to what I would see as the second call here in Isaiah 55. And the second call, I would say, is not, not simply a call to come, but also a call to listen and learn it, because there is much in it. actually if i even go back before verse three which is where we'll take up it says that the second half of verse three it says this listen diligently to me i, I like that phrasing and i wanted to remind us of that listen diligently to me the scripture says it's not a passive listening it's an attentiveness it's a diligentness, and I often urge this, trust me, you and I will have ample time to consider those around us who fall short of the things that we consider. Let us, in the initial hearings of the Word of God, impress it first upon our own hearts, our own my lives, measure ourselves according to the Word of God. Here it says this, really taking up now in verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Now this is where you can see he's, he's taking things to a different level. He's not simply talking about the eating and drinking that allows your body to go on living in its basic sustenance. He's now saying this, listen to me, and in the listening, what will happen? Hear that your soul may live. Not just, we're not just talking about the body. It's, it's pressing the realities of the spiritual teaching here in Isaiah 55 deeper. These are spiritual realities. These are eternal realities. And the world may still be confused by it, but it has always been and will continue to be the design of God, as it says in Romans chapter 10, faith comes by hearing, hearing the words of Christ. There's, there's no other way, and, and, I, and I will encourage this to you as well, as we increase in faith, as we grow in grace, progress also comes by hearing, a diligent hearing, a listening that is intent on learning that we might live. And he says here, I hear these things so that your soul might live. And then he says something again, somewhat seemingly unexpected. But for those who were in the Sunday school hour, it, it kind of comes full circle in that we oft hear these things. He comes on from listen to me diligently in this food, incline your ear, hear that your soul may live. Verse three, halfway through, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. 
my steadfast, sure love for David. Say, what? Something seems just a little amiss there, doesn't it? Because by the time Isaiah is writing, is David, even if you're not an Old Testament scholar, is David the presiding king of Israel? He is not. If I were to ask you at this time, where is David? He is not on the throne, but he is buried. He is in the grave, and his body has decayed. So, we might ask ourselves, what then is the hope, or what then is the value of an everlasting covenant that has some peculiar connection to God's steadfast love for David. And I'm glad that you asked, because we get to consider how rich the Word of God is, even as it says in Isaiah 11, verse 10, it says, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him the nation shall inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. When you begin to put the pictures of that together, when we were talking this morning how at times the prophets prophesied and the scope, the particulars, and the depths of what they were saying, they made careful search and inquiry and still were left with, what? I don't understand but the scriptures do make it clear to us even as the promise that was given to David in first chronicles 17 11 and following says this when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers it's a sweet way of saying it where are his fathers the dead and so when if you're going to walk with your fathers what does that mean yeah, you're no longer walking with your sons who are on the face of the earth. You're dead. The, the, the sweet ways at times the scripture refers to it. But then he says, I will raise up your offspring after you. Now what's amazing is we begin to hear this say, wait, that sounds a lot like the promise that God made to Abraham where he said, I will raise up your offspring after you. To which the Jews always thought, he's talking about us. We are the offspring of Abraham. And then Paul, by the Holy Spirit in Galatians says, actually it does not say offsprings, as in many, but offspring, that is Christ. We say, wait a second. So all of the promises to Abraham, find their fulfillment in and then through Christ, and we say, amen. Because every promise of God finds its yea and amen in Christ. And we just oft not put that together in the same way that Christ was the offspring of Abraham. Christ is the promised offspring of David. In a certain sense, Solomon would be the immediate offspring. And he would build the house, but that house would not last. 
it would be torn down and then rebuilt and torn down again. But the house that is built of living stones with Christ as the chief cornerstone, it is a temple that will not be undone. Let me, if I can, finish reading 1 Corinthians Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 17. I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me. In some sense true of Solomon, in a greater sense true of Christ. Even Jesus might say at one point, one greater than Solomon is among you, which he did. And I will be, verse 13, a father to him, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Is that Solomon? How long did his throne last? No, and did Solomon even endure in faithfulness? What did Solomon do? In the process of time and disobedience to God, he multiplied wives, and under the influence of those foreign wives, he went after false gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord God all the days of his life. But there would be another son of David, far wiser than Solomon far more supreme than, than, than Solomon, who would build a better house than Solomon built. And that's why the scriptures, uh, come on, I love the words that are spoken. Again, we mentioned this morning by Simeon, as baby Jesus is sitting in his arms in the temple. He says this in Luke chapter 2, verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. I always love those words because who is he looking at? He's looking at Jesus and he's looking at him through the eyes of faith and hope because of the promises that God had spoken to Simeon. And he says, I am looking at your salvation. Even as, as it says personified in Jesus, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. Who is the grace of God? Who is the salvation of God? It is Christ. It is Him. Who is, in effect, the covenant that God gives to the peoples? Christ Himself is covenant and the blood of the covenant. He goes on in Luke chapter 1 to speak of this one before He's even born and says this in verse 32. He will be great. And again, my heart turns in a little bit of circles because even driving to church this morning, I see a sign in somebody's yard that says as a, as a subtitle before recommending voting for particular individuals, it says, keep America great. All right, great. We use the word great for things like our countries and for things that are far less that was a great shot that was a great play that is a great song your hair looks great 
today. We, we, we use these words, and so that's why there's a part of me that when, I, when, it, when it reads this, I, I both inflate and deflate, because yes, he will be great. But we use that so weakly of other things that are so incomparably less great than he is. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. God promised to David's offspring. And he goes on to say, And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. That is what it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 32. So when we're looking at this, and, and this is the beauty of it, when it's telling us to hunger and thirst for more, when it's telling us there's something more significant than the transient things of this world, there's something more satisfying. Remember, I want us to recognize what it directs us to centrally and primarily is Christ. All of the glorious hopes and blessings and promises are in Christ. We've spoken of this before and I don't want us to miss this. We ought not merely see Christ as a means of salvation. As a means of forgiveness. As a means of blessing. If all he serves is that you get those things, you've missed it. He himself is great. He himself is glorious. He himself is our salvation. Remember, when he returns, it, it, the scripture says, he, when he who is my life appears, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And, and the concern can arise, and rightly so, the church at large values Christ, and rightly so. And we must value Christ. But God forbid that Christ is supposedly a means to something better? A means to something more? Even as we would see, we, we talk about how the scriptures say, Jesus says, look, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And then it says, and all these things will be added unto you. And so many people present that instead of a, as, as a passionate goal, seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's do this because if and when you do, all these things you really want will be added to you. Whereas I'll say this, you seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness what is required for you to fulfill God's purposes in your life will be supplied to you. But that's not, you don't, you don't get this. And actually when you, by the grace of God and a hunger and thirst, pursue the kingdom of God and his righteousness, what you will find is, I don't care for those things as much. They lose their appeal, they lose their, their, their beauty, they lose their desirability. Because I'm glimpsing something of greater glory, something of greater value. And the scriptures just unpack this so wonderfully, so much so that it says this in Revelation chapter 22. And I bring this because it ties it back into the beginning of chapter 55. It says, Jesus says this, I, Jesus, 22, 16, 
have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David. Don't miss this. All that was promised in Abraham, it's about Jesus. All that is promised in David, it's about Jesus. Remember even uh, Adam and his failings. We look not to the first Adam, but to the second Adam. We already bear the likeness of the first Adam to our death and disorder. We want to bear the likeness of the last Adam to glory and resurrection. Jesus says this still, uh, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. How beautifully it comes full circle. And we begin to see what a difference it is when we, even considering the things we've been looking at. Under the old covenant, when that was given to them, and which is oft summarized by this simple phrase, uh, do this and live, to which they ought exclaim, I cannot have mercy, Lord. I cannot. But many of them strangely I have. Even the rich young ruler said to Jesus, which, which again, he's not quite understanding who Jesus is. But when you, Jesus needs no man to testify about him because he already knows what's in every man. So when Jesus says, keep all the commandments, and the rich young ruler said, all these I've done since my youth. You know, and what, what's amazing is Jesus surely could have said, all right, how much time you got? Let me unpack for you some of the significant ways in which you did not. Oh, yeah. But Jesus didn't do that. He just said, go and sell all that you have and follow me. Where is your treasure? Where is your kingdom? Where is your heart? Is it in Christ or is it in this world? He just cut to the chase with him. And this, this is in Exodus. Chapter 19, if you read it, God simply says this to the children of Israel. He says, look, if you will obey the commands and statutes that I give to you this day, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a royal nation, my treasured possession. But here, here lied the problem. If you will. And the scriptures remind us very clearly over and over again, no man is righteous. And the way that, of course, we love the way that it's said in Romans chapter 3, because as soon as you're starting to try to come up with excuses or you're thinking of some holy man or some evangelist or some preacher who's gone here and there, it, it goes ahead and brings it to a clear end by saying, no, not one. None is righteous. No, not one. Here's the beauty. The old, the, that covenant was a covenant that was going to be brought to an end because do this and live, none could do. But when we come to the new covenant, and when we come, for example, to 1 Peter 
chapter 2, instead of saying, if you will, there is a sense in which it says, because Christ has. Verse 9 of chapter 2 says, you are a chosen people. It's stated simply as a statement of fact, as 1 Peter is written to the elect of the dispersion. As it's written to the people of God, it's in Christ, it says to them, you are. If you what? No. Because he has. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Go on with me and let us see the third call. Not only is there the call to come for everyone who's thirsts, not only is there the call to listen and learn, there is also the call to repent. In verse 6, it says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Now I know when I read that, some of you are saying, Okay, brother, you just quoted moments ago, Romans chapter 3. And here this passage says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. And Romans 3 that says, There's none who's righteous, no, not one. It then nextly, nextly says, There is none who seek after God. So what's going on here? I just, just want you to note this, the, the sense of this. Note that this is being said in the context of the Old Testament to the Old Covenant people who are living in disobedience. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Now that's an interesting phrase if, when, you, when you look at it. And, and then it, it, but what I want you to see about that phrase, uh, call upon Him while He is found. Near. The principle that that would convey to an Israelite under the old covenant is know this. There is a line that has been drawn. And you do not know where that line is. But you're getting close. Once that line is crossed, you're coming under judgment. You're coming under exile. That's it. No going back. You can't, after the fact, come and do it. I'll give you an example. These kinds of things happened in Jeremiah. They've already crossed the line and they're getting ready to go into exile. They're going to be in exile for 70 years, Jeremiah will even say. But listen to what God says to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 7, 16. And I know as you read this, you're going to say, what? But again, please note what you're saying, what to is a verse I'm reading. Not something I'm saying. It's, God says to Jeremiah, as for you, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry of prayer for them and do not intercede with me for I will not hear you. Is that not scary? My goodness, that's it. He's telling Jeremiah, they have crossed the judgment line. My judgment and the exile is coming on them. There's no stopping it. Do not even try. 
And what I want us to note is this, listen, believer, this verse is not said to you and to me. Do not stop praying for your nation. Do not stop praying for your neighbors. We are actually encouraged and told to pray for those who persecute us. We're told to pray for those leaders and governing authorities. We're told to pray for our enemies, okay? So understand that. But the the idea that is still being conveyed is simply this. There's going to come a point where there's nothing but judgment. And, And people start to presume upon some sense of a grandfatherly God. Some sense of a sweet Santa God. Where, where, where because He is love, because He is compassionate, because He is slow to anger and merciful, they somehow think it's all going to be okay. I remember speaking with a man who was from America, from San Francisco area, who was relocated to Mauritius, and both of us attended the same service on a particular Sunday, and the sermon had been the love of God and how much God loves people and there's nothing they can do to make him love them more, nothing to make him love less and, he, and on and on. God's love is eternal. God's love is unchanging. And, and, and this fellow walked away afterwards, a complete unbeliever, one of his first few times in church and said, so basically I can keep going on my drunken binges. I can keep partying. I don't have to follow Uh, turn from my sin and follow Jesus only because no matter what I do, the love of God is complete and maximum for me already so that when the final day comes, this is all I'm going to hear. I love you as much as Moses, as much as David. I love you. Come on. But is that the way the scripture teaches it? Now, remember, the the love of God is certainly a complex topic. And there are facets of God's love that are absolutely eternal, unchanging, fixed within His own eternal purposes in Christ. Indeed. But the, the confusion about that is, it's not all the same and equal to everyone. Jacob I loved, Esau I Hated, declares the Lord. Now, whatever that may mean to you, it clearly indicates it's not the same. And so what we, we got to understand, here is this call to repent for them to come back from this. Because otherwise they will cross that line. And the scripture reminds us of the same thing. And we say that as a warning to the peoples today, don't we? Listen, as was preached in Acts 17. Paul said, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Okay? For the children of Israel, there was a line. Even in a sense, if you look back, when God promised the the land of Canaan to the descendants of Abraham, he said, look, not right now. It's going to come to your children, but first they're going to actually go into exile. Because... The sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. They haven't crossed that line that I've drawn, that I've made. I will tell you this. 
There is still a line that's drawn. There is still a line that's made. Hebrews says clearly this irrevocable line. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, just as it has been appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment. Oh, that the world would know we are thankful for the mercy of God. We're thankful for his compassion. We're thankful for his patience. But listen to that call to repent. Because there comes a time in which there is no more repenting. On which it's done. People have tried even in, the, in their sense of trying to struggle with things. To even develop second chance theologies. Well what about. what? Well, no. Die. Judgment. That's it. And, and the scriptures are so powerfully clear. And, and it's something that we, we need to understand and not miss. Because listen, it says in this, in verse 7, Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man his thoughts. So he, here's, the, here's the challenge. And, and I want to say this as sweetly as possible. When it says wicked and unrighteous... That's all of us by nature. We were the, the unrighteous. We were the wicked. We were those at enmity with God. The scriptures have made that abundantly clear and we've looked at that over and over again. And so what does a person, a natural man, born into this world, has to be brought by the Spirit of God to say what? My ways what I think is right, what I think is good, what I, th what I think is, is holy, what I think is true, my ways, I've got to throw them out. My thoughts, my wisdom, my expectation, my assumptions, I've got to throw them out. Wait a second. If all of my righteousness is filthy rags, and I've got to throw that out, all of my ways are useless. I got to throw them out. All of my thoughts are useless. I throw them out. Then uh, what do I have to offer? Nothing. It's because Christ offered himself in our stead that we are told to come, that we are welcomed. That, that it is open. And that's why in the midst of this, now as, I'm, as I'm, I'm speaking about the judgments and commands of God. And I remind you, in, in Exodus 34, Moses had said, God, show me your glory. You remember that? And he hid him in the cleft of the rock and he passed before him. And he heard these words, words which proclaimed his glory. The Lord... The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving and iniquity and transgression and sin. And we hear that and we're like, amen, wonderful. But I didn't finish reading. It also says of this holy and glorious God, but who will by no means clear the guilty. No means none known to man, 
no means done by man, but there would be only one divine means that would accomplish what none other could do. And still, even in the presence of His glory, is a statement of His judgment. And we've just got to understand, judgment will come. So our ways, get rid of them. Our thoughts, get rid of them. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says this, There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death says the same thing again in chapter 16 in case we did not get it the first time. And again, we live in a world where people like to boast in the idea of, I did it my way. And maybe you've heard such a song. I know in certain companies you wouldn't have, but sometimes you don't pay attention. Listen to the last verse of that famous song written by Paul Anka, but made popular by Frank Sinatra. The words were this, For what is a man? What has he got? For a moment, I feel like he's headed in the right direction. Nothing! (laughs) He needs the grace of God. But he says, Is not, if not himself, then he has not. No, no, no. If not The Savior, he has not. If not Christ, he has not. If not himself, he has not. To say all the things he truly feels and not the words, and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows, I took the blows, but I did it my way. Really? What are we? By the grace of God, we are those who kneel. And we will all say in the end, I did not do it my way. Hopefully we can stand and declare together even now, not don't do it, but figuratively, we do it His way, not ours. In everything, God set us free from this foolish deception. Grant us genuine repentance. 1 Corinthians 3, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. He catches the wise in their craftiness. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. They come to nothing. Go on with me, if you would, and let's see uh, verse 8 and 9. Listen, for for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways Your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So listen, and I often say this, and and I'm okay to say it repeatedly. We forsake our ways. We forsake our thoughts. Because they're wrong. Yes, that's right, they're wrong. (laughs) How often are our innate thoughts of God wrong? They're always wrong because they're always diminished. We have a tendency to think of God in the forms and frames of men. 
in, in, in a, with a finite scope and a finite mind. We think him fickle and we think him finicky and we don't understand righteousness. We don't understand vengeance is mine. We don't understand divine retribution. And we don't need to because he does. And so we leave that to him and we attend to what he set before us. But listen, he says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And then he gives that, what I would call a climactic comparison. As high as the heavens are above the earth. Now in that phrasing there again, it says heavens, plural, Whereas maybe you don't often think of multiple heavens. But in the, in the Jewish economy, remember Paul even at one occasion in the New Testament speaks of being caught up into the third heaven. Because there was the sense in which our atmosphere, the sky, is the first heaven. Then you go beyond that, what's visible at night. Space and the cosmos is the second heaven. And then the abode of God and his throne room with the angels is the third heaven. So you got all of this. Now, I'm going to stop in terms of a brief consideration with what is called the second heavens. Because I, I can't completely fathom a distance or location of the third heaven. But with regard to the present universe in which we live. How big is it? Now, scientists for ages have, have continued to give projections, and they say further, and then they uh, update and improve some software on the Hubble telescope, and then they say, this time we think we are going to see the edge of the universe. This time we're going to. And they keep proposing that, and each time they don't. So that presently their measurement is what they call the observable universe, which is what we can now see. And in terms of the observable, if this makes much sense to us, the observable universe is supposedly in diameter according to scientists, 93 billion light years across. So if you could travel at the speed of light, which have you ever met anyone do that? Is there a vehicle that does that? Even sound doesn't travel at the speed of light. It travels at the speed of sound. See, we know some stuff. But speed of light, 40, uh, 93 billion years worth of travel at that speed, and you get from one end to the other of the observable. All right? So just taking the observable, let's compare my thoughts with God's. <laughs> You know, I've often said it, 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 it could be like comparing your and my intellect to that of a mosquito. I mean, do you fancy yourself smarter than a mosquito? Most of us would say, you work it on up. I'm smarter than a dog, I'm smarter than a beaver, I'm smarter than a monkey. 
Listen to me. The divide between mosquito and you is still a lot closer than the divide between you and I and God in terms of his perfections and his thoughts. It's absolutely immeasurable. You know, it's funny. Uh, NASA says this, and, and, and I prefer this simple statement. You can find it on the NASA website. How big... So how big is the universe? No one knows. Thank you. Finally, if the universe is infinitely large, or even if ours is the only universe, basically they're starting to say, we who have the most data of any organization, because that's what we're committed to, And we who have the most data of any generation who's ever exists, let us tell you what we know about the universe. We don't know. Nothing for sure. Oh, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Reading recently through the book of Job in our McShane's reading, anyone who's doing that, we see verses like this that just set our hearts and minds in the right place. Job 36, verse 22 and 23. Worship God as I read these to you. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Oh, that we would be students of that teacher. Who has prescribed for him his ways? Or who can say to him, you have done wrong? You know, none of us probably planned or purposed or desired some sort of a pandemic that would bring about some sort of national emergency. But God has purposed those things at times and seasons throughout history. God has brought plagues and pestilence and pandemics in various times and seasons. We saw the way that he poured out those things upon even the children of of Egypt. We also saw remarkably how God could pick and choose so that it would all fall upon and exclusively Egyptians and their livestock, but not on Israelites and their livestock. And we say, well, how can that happen? Disease is just indiscriminate. Yeah, if disease was independent. But there is nothing in all of existence that is independent of God and His divine designs. We see further, Job 36, 26, Behold, God is great, and we know Him not. I want to say this to you, believers, brothers and sisters, in in Christ, there is a spiritual sense in which we know Him, and there is a humble sense in which, which we need to still acknowledge the fullness of His glory, His purposes. We know Him not. Even as 1 Corinthians 13 reminds us, listen, we know in part. It's the poor guy who thinks he already knows everything that's really missing the boat. And it's even worse, the guy who, who, who reads the scripture and says, yeah, that doesn't quite work with how I see God. Well, you're wrong. How you think of God is wrong. How he reveals himself is right. He's the teacher. 
but not all want to be students. We know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. Job 37, 5. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. We've talked about it before. How does Revelation 11 end? His judgments are unsearchable. His ways are inscrutable. So the moment a man says, I figured it out. Moment a man says, no, uh, God would not do like that because in my estimation, in my judgment, what? God declares himself. And we sit and we listen. Throughout the book of Job, actually, this is what was happening. Job was declaring certain things. Job's friends, Eliphaz and Bildad, these guys were all sharing their own views only to realize our thoughts of God are wrong. We're about to end on this, and we'll finish this chapter up next week. Job 37, verse, 20, verse yeah, 23 and 24. The Almighty, we cannot find Him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore, men fear Him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. So here's a smart thing. Acknowledge you're not wise in your own conceit. Trust not our own thoughts and our wisdom. Job 42. Job, after hearing all of these things, he basically his response becomes this in Job 42.3. Who is this that hides counsel with knowledge? Wherefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. And then what does he say? Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Oh God, so wonderful, so glorious, so powerful. And next week we're going to see a little bit about his power accomplishing salvation and also uh, fulfilling his purpose every single moment and every single time. But I want to close by drawing our attention back to this. Even as we've spoken of a God who, who, who draws a line, and that line is death, those who do not repent are going to fall under judgment, a fiery judgment. I do, do want to remember and not let us mistake this. For those who by grace, regardless of their circumstances, forsake their way, forsake their thoughts, forsake their claims of righteousness, and by grace claim Christ as their only grounds and their only hope. The scripture reminds us of this at the end of verse 7. For the one who forsakes his way and his thoughts, let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And I love this next phrase in the ESV. To our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Abundantly pardon. You see, you, you catch the scope of that? Because when we understand the scriptures rightly, every single one of us who stands in Christ Jesus, we have been abundantly pardoned immeasurably pardoned right now we don't even understand the full scope of the sins that we committed in our life not being righteous as God we don't understand the scope of those things but someday 
And hopefully the more, and the more we study the scriptures, it becomes even clearer to us in this life. Oh God, in Christ, you have abundantly pardoned us as we by your grace forsake our ways, forsake our thoughts, forsake our righteousness, in a, in a sense, forsake the world and lay hold of that which God himself alone has provided and brought us to. Christ our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we are in this world and we know and we need not fear the things of this world that no one by their own uh, anxiety or worry can add a single span to their life. Lord, we know that your scripture reminds us that you are the one who has intricately woven us in the inner parts and you have numbered the days, our days, and allotted them to us so that whatever comes in this world we need not stand in fear of those things. And Lord, in the midst of whatever trials come into our life and whatever uh, uh, circumstances and storms seem to arise in this world, God, I pray that we would not fix our eyes upon the seeming danger and the seeming darkness and the seeming storm, but let us fix our eyes upon Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. Let us seek those things which are above. God, we thank you for this rich reminder of the grace that is ours the abundant pardon and forgiveness that has come because you have set your son on the throne of David and he will come again and he will judge the living and the dead. Lord, we just thank you for the confidence that we have in him and the humility that your scripture evokes that we learn to let your word continue to weed out the, the weak thoughts of the flesh that may prevail within us. God, teach us your ways. Work by your grace and your spirit and your word that we would have the mind of Christ in us. Lord, we thank you that we can with confidence look to you in all circumstances and we can give you praise and glory and honor and say that our God indeed is great and that no one can comprehend him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.